back to another episode of Pocket Law Talks. This is your host, Brad. Over across the way at the controls is Devin again. How's it going? Today, we're going to nerd out a little bit on DUI law. DUI. So, what's that? Drunk driving law. Um, one of the things you'll hear is they hear me talking about just because it gets used so inter- interchangeably. People call it drunk driving. They call it DUI. They call it OWI. They call it OVWI. All yeah, of those things. That's always that's always been my question is like what is the discrepancy between, you know, DUI, OWI, OWVI? Because I know one of them is like not related to a car, it's related to like a machine or something like that. No, there's actually no difference. It's all just statutory framework and how the states have developed it. Some states call it a DUI in their statutes, some call it an OWI, some call it O V W I. Indiana and that is officially an OVWI state, and that stands for operating a vehicle while intoxicated. So, um, but they the, use their terms inter- are used interchangeably. About, yeah, because I feel like I've seen on my case, like people that will say DUI or OVWI. Right. I don't know if I've seen an OWI, but I have heard of it. Yeah, it's just operating a vehicle while intoxicated, driving under the influence, or operating while intoxicated. Um, that's it's they're all the same though. So there's there's the DUI, OWI, OVWI, whatever, all the same, all drunk driving. And then there's also what's called the um, BAC charge, which is your blood alcohol content. You know, everybody hears. Oh, that's a separate charge. That's a separate charge. Yeah. So don't it's just drive over the, the limit. BAC charge. Yeah. Don't drive over the limit. 0.08. You see it all over the billboards. I don't think I've ever seen uh, that. They would just lump that in with a DUI, right? Two different charges. So you can actually be operating a vehicle, and so it's easier to prove, right? Because the crime for a BAC charge is operating a vehicle with a BAC over 0.08. Don't have to show intoxication. Intoxication shows you have to show both a mental and physical impairment. So if you get charged with operating a vehicle while intoxicated, the state has to prove that you operated a vehicle while intoxicated. That intoxicated, they have to show you were suffering from a mental and a physical impairment. On the BAC charge, if you have a BAC 0.08, all they have to do is show you drive your vehicle, at the time you drove the vehicle, you're at a point away. So if you're one of those people that are just like superhuman and can have a one point or a point oh nine, whatever, alcoholic, yeah, and and be completely functional, right? You know, I I I still feel like they would just lump that in with the DUI, and and if you took it to the trial, the jury's the just gonna be. So the impacts are the same. So there's two, there's four different charges that can result out of that out of this in uh, Indiana. So operating there's operating a vehicle while intoxicated. That's they have to show you're under the influence of a drug or alcohol and includes include and included a physical or mental impairment. That's a C misdemeanor. Then there's a BAC charge, it's an equivalent of that. That's operating a vehicle with a BAC between 0.08 and a 0.14. That's a C misdemeanor. Those two are kind of the equivalents. And then there's a step up for both. There's operating a vehicle while intoxicated endangering a person. So you have that extra element. Where somebody was endangered, like almost hitting someone or something, or swerving on the road. Well, we'll or does it about, have to be more specific? We'll talk about that. What that means in a second. That's an A misdemeanor, and then there's operating a vehicle over a .15 BAC, so .15 or higher. That's an A misdemeanor. So those two are kind of equivalent. They'll charge both. So you may have operating a vehicle while intoxicated, endangering a person, which is an A misdemeanor, and you may have operating a vehicle with a BAC. Between a point oh eight and point one four is a C misdemeanor. They they may charge both, uh, and they almost always do because the BAC charge is easier to prove. Now, what does it mean that extra element of endangering a person? That can be um, another person or yourself. So, what? Yeah. <laughs> so That's fucking stupid. If you're endangering yourself, so it's a very easy threshold for them to meet because 
think about drunk driving. If you're dri- driving drunk, you're almost always potentially endangering yourself. So it doesn't take a whole lot. But let's say they find you passed out at a stop sign, right? That's a tougher case of proven endangerment. So you might just get the OWI with C misdemeanor, no endangering. I mean, they could claim that. But if you drive over the fog line, you run through a stop sign, you well, they could claim those, they still claim it's endangerment because if you're stopped at a stop, if you're slumped over at like a stoplight or a stop sign, and your foot goes off the brake, you're gonna roll in the traffic. So I mean, I, f- I feel like they could still argue right. endangerment. No, they can, but it, it's the case where you may you may be able to make a good argument the other way. Now, then the BAC charge again, all you have to do is show at the time you're driving, you had a BAC of 0.08.14 or a misdemeanor of above a 0.5. Where that gets a little tricky is it's supposed to be at the time you're driving. Well, they can't, they don't know what your BAC is when you're driving because at the time they take your BAC, you're not driving anymore, right? Is yeah. there not like a formula based on the, you know, average degra- degradation of it in your blood? How you break down alcohol? Oh, yeah. 100%. So alcohol operates on a bell curve, right? Right. You're, you're, as you drink more, your BAC gradually goes up. Once you stop drinking, it still continues to go up. You hit a pinnacle, and then it goes back down. The average person uh, burns off about 0.03 uh, alcohol per an hour. So if you're drinking So a if you're third, on a 0.08, you could be sober in three hours? Yeah. So you could go from, like, blitz drunk to sober in three hours. 0.08 is not blitz drunk. That would be to me. It might be for you, but it's not for like somebody that drinks sometimes even. 0.08 is it. You can get to be a 0.08 with like three or four really strong beers or three glasses of wine. Oh, okay. That can get you to 0.08. You might be feeling a little, you know, a little loose, a little tipsy, but you're not like stumbling over yourself. But studies show that at a 0.08, when you're doing a, a um, dual tension activity like driving, where you're using your feet, you're using your hands, you're using your eyes. You know, to all control, you are impaired. It slows your function and reaction time down. So at a point of weight, they all say it's too too unsafe to drive. Now, a toxicologist, like somebody that's an expert in the field of toxicology, will tell you you shouldn't drive it over 0.05. Now, 0.05 is only maybe a couple beers, maybe three. All depends. Are you drinking an IPA or are you drinking a beer that's, you know, a Miller Lite, right? Right. One's going to get more intoxicated quicker than the other. So generally speaking, as a general rule of thumb, if you drink more than two drinks, you shouldn't drive. Because there's a chance you may be over 0.08. Um, but your body burns about 0.03 per an hour. So if you're drinking two or three beers per an hour, you're going to get drunk. Because you're not going to be able to burn off as much as your body. Your body can't burn off as much as you're consuming. Same with glasses of wine. They have higher alcohol content. A couple glasses of wine in an hour. You do two more the second hour. You're going to start getting your BAC up there, there pretty well. So, you know, they've done a bunch of studies to show what level of alcohol gets you impaired. But this, the trick still is... They have to show it was when you're driving. Well, the, there's, there's, we'll talk about the different tests they do. Um, but there's two different types of tests they'll do for your BAC. One's the portable breath test. That's the one the officer hands you in the road and you blow into a little handheld device. That can be used to establish probable calls. So for your arrest, but that is not admissible in court. Those devices are not considered reliable enough to, to admit in court. But so, it's still enough for probable cause. Enough to develop probable, probable cause just means there's a uh, reasonable suspicion. Reasonable right? suspicion there's yeah. criminal activity, right? So that's very low burden. But to prove beyond a reasonable doubt is deemed not reliable enough to use. So they have to then take you to a station where they use a certified calibrated instrument to measure it. its giant box. You blow into a tube. Uh, they have to either take you to that or they have to take you to a blood draw. So now another 
hour of time or so has passed right before they know what your BAC well, what do they t- I feel like they typically just do a blood draw right like I don't think no, I've they ever most heard... often do a breath test no obviously like on the road convenient. blood test or no, breath no, no. test but the breath tests are every jail in Indiana has them these certified breath test instruments many police departments have them so they'll take you on the way to jail they'll take you into a room and and you have to you have to take this certified breath test it's an instrument that's calibrated every six months Make sure it's it's being accurate. It has built in uh, some built in characteristics that make it more favorable for the test taker. So it'll it assumes some assumptions about partition ratio and how you break down alcohol that are a little bit more favorable to most test takers. There's a few that it's it's the opposite way for, um, and then it gives a certified result that is admissible in court. So, but that tells you what their BAC was at an hour and a half later, right? By the time they do all the tests on the road and they get you to the jail. So how do they fix that? Indiana has, in most states, have what's called an implied consent law and, and, a, and a law that says, the implied consent law says you'll consent to the test. The law says if you take the test within three hours of driving, then it can be presumed that's what your BAC was when you were driving. So what? Even though, but if it takes three hours to... Take the test and your BAC is changing during that three hours for sure. Could be up, could be going up, could be going down. Uh, that test is considered, there's a uh, presumption that that test is the same that uh, you would be when you're driving. So that's how they get it into court and that's how they can admit it and saying that's what you were when you're driving. Now, you can hire your own expert, you can hire a toxicologist, you can subpoena the state's toxicologist to come in and testify for you about the bell curve and where you might have been. And on cases where it's a 0.08, 0.09, sometimes there's a decent argument there to get below that level. So... Uh, let's talk a little bit. But then about, you'd still have a BAC charge in general, right? If it's over 0.08, you're still going to have that BAC charge. So let's talk a little about how does a DUI start. I mean, it's almost always sometimes. Well, I don't think it needs to be said that it starts with someone drinking. Well, right. But in terms <laughs> of the actual investigation, sometimes cops are shooting a, shooting fish in a barrel, right? And they're sitting outside of a bar or up at Ruoff Music Center in Noblesville. They're sitting uh, you know, two blocks away from there after a country concert, uh, you know, they're going to find anybody and everybody's decent chance they're going to find people that are, are drinking and driving. So they'll just sit there and watch and watch for somebody that crosses the center line, somebody following a vehicle too, too closely, rolls through a stop sign, speeding, whatever. If they're pulling you over at 3 in the morning, they're looking to see if you're drunk. That's what they're doing. And so they're using a, a perfunctory traffic violation to go up to your car. Once they come up to your car, if they smell the odor of alcohol, which they'll say they do most of the time, uh, then they can. Then they have enough probable cause to administer um, tests on the roadside. Interestingly enough, unlike most things that um, you do that can incriminate you, doing field sobriety tests don't have to be Mirandized. So you don't have to give all the warnings you do before you give a statement, even though those doing those tests themselves are to incriminate Pretty incriminating, you. yeah. Yeah, you don't have to do that. So huh. that's how a DUI, DUI sort of comes by, back. So what's interesting is like your first one's always, for the most part, a misdemeanor, but as soon as you get a second one, it's always a felony, right? Yeah, so if you get a first offense DUI, it's gonna be either the a, a misdemeanor or C misdemeanor we talked about. Uh, the BAC charge, the, the driving uh, under the influence or driving under the influence endangering your person. If you get a second one and it's within seven years, it's automatically a felony. So it has to be within seven years. If it's after seven years, uh, let's say you got a DUI in 2000, and you got your second one in 2014. It's going to be a misdemeanor again. But 
that prior conviction, you have to do a mandatory five days in jail. Oh, even uh, if it's like 20 years even before? Even if it's 20 years before. Is there any leniency on that? Like a judge may say, like, we'll forego this, you did this when you were a kid, now you're in your 60s, whatever it may be? Nope. It, well, there's one exception. And then if you have two priors, you have to do 10 days in jail. And it's actual days. You don't get good, you don't get good time credit. There is a community service component you can do instead. And if it's, I think if it's, um, for the one, if it's just one prior, I believe it's 185 hours you have to do. If it's two priors, it's 270 hours, I believe it is, or 285 hours. It's an ungodly amount. So yeah, that's that's about a week for the first one. What was the second one? You said 285. I think it's 285 or something along those lines. Very close to that. That was 11.8 days. Yeah, that's. Yeah, that's like having another part-time job yeah, or a full-time like job. for like a couple months. Right, because you got to spread. You got to still do your regular job and then find out. Yeah, I've had probably just sit in jail in my entire time of doing this work. I've had I think two clients do the community service um, uh, option and complete it. How long did they, did they give you? Like a year or like how long? Did they give Typically you? six to nine months, uh, but it's hard if you have a full-time job to do that much community service. Yeah, it's very difficult. So that's how the, the priors work. And then if you get two uh, I mean, two priors and get a third one, they can do what's called a habitual vehicle substance offender against you, which enhances the sentence up to eight years. Uh, you can have up to eight years in DOC just for the habitual part of it. So as you can see, the more DUIs you get, the more... Um, do you get points on your license for a DUI? Absolutely. Consider major, major, major offense, eight offense, eight point offense, if you get three of them in 10 years, you'll be administratively determined to be a habitual traffic violator by the BMV, and you'll get another license suspension on top of whatever you get for the DUIs. And so, that's usually five years. Damn. So let's let's say you're a perfect driver outside of the fact you keep getting DUIs. I know you can lose your license like forever. How many DUIs would it take to lose your license forever? Now, so they, they used to have lifetime uh, bans for HTV, habitual traffic violators. They took that away. Oh, they don't do that anymore? No. Oh, okay. There's 10-year suspensions is the most worst-case scenario now. Which might as well be lifetime because you're going to continue to drive that's and continue to get caught. Well, that's why they created specialized driving privileges. So there are options to get around those. Usually if you can you – yeah, know, if you have three or four DUI convictions – you know, maybe you shouldn't be driving for a while until you can show you can stay sober, right? So let's say you do that, and then you have, like, three years of sobriety. You've gotten a good job again. Uh, you can go to court, ask for specialized driving privileges. They're likely to give it to you in that situation because you've shown yourself to be not so much of a risk to the community. So let's go back to the traffic stop, though. They've done the, They've smelled the odor of alcohol. Now they're going to get you out of the car and do what are called standard field sobriety tests. So... Standard field sobriety tests were um, tests that were developed. They are um, dual attention type tests where you're, they're having you do multiple things that are pulling your attention in different directions at the same time. The thought behind it being that that's the same type of um, mental capacity it takes to drive a vehicle. So you're pushing a gas pedal, you're pushing yeah. a brake, you're watching for traffic, you're having to steer. Uh, you know, you're using multiple times parts of your brain at the same time. So they created these tests, and what they did to, to um, they were originally just called field sobriety tests, right? And they used to do all types of ones, like do the alphabet backwards, touch your fingers to the tip of your fingers. And some of these are still done. Count backwards from, you know, 39 to 17, stuff like that. Those are still considered field sobriety tests, but they haven't been certified uh, or standardized. So what they did is they took what they thought were the most, I guess, uh, accurate in determining if somebody's intoxicated or not, the one-leg stand, the walk and turn, and then something called horizontal gaze nystagmus, 
and they standardized them by doing a test with the, um, uh, I believe it was the police in San Diego in California. They took those, um, they did a study where they took the, um, all the drunk drivings that were happening in that, at that time, and they would they did the walk and turn, the one leg stand, and the HGN, and they said, okay, the people that failed these, how many of these people that failed them also test above a .08? So are we measuring a decent amount? What is this showing somebody's intoxicated or not? And if somebody failed all three, 89% of the time, they also tested above a .08. Okay. So, so that's how they standardize them and say, all right, this is a pretty good indicator right. of probable cause that if you pass those, if you fail those three, you're also going to be, you probably are intoxicated. So I know, I know they can put like a breathalyzer in your car that you have to blow into it before it starts. What, how long does it, what do you have to do to get to that point? Like how many times do you have to fuck That's up? That's a lot of DUIs. That usually. is? Yeah. I mean, not necessarily. I mean, you'll see an ignition interlock sometimes. It, some judges will do it like to let you get specialized driving privileges. They'll make you have an ignition interlock to let you so that you're it's so you're safe to the community. I'd say you see it most often on people that have two or more convictions. Okay. But, so but, I mean I mean two for for DUIs that's a lot, but it for people that drink that's not a lot, I would feel. Well, like. yeah, I mean if you get two DUIs, you've probably drank and dr- dr- driven drunk yeah, a lot multiple times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not always. Sometimes you just have really 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 bad luck, but for most people that means it's probably happened. Do you multiple uh times. do you think those ignition interlocking do you think those are actually a good deterrent? Cuz I mean I I've heard, you know, of people being like having their kid blow in it so they can drive. Yeah, or so something. the technology now is Pretty, pretty awesome, pretty amazing. So when you when you blow into it now, the device actually takes a picture of you. Oh, really? Picture. <laughs> so you can't have like your no. little kid doing they it. They used something. to do that all the time. Yeah. But now it takes a picture of you. It's digitally sent to the monitoring center. The minute monitoring center uses facial recognition software and it determines if it's not you, it then sends an alert oh. to your case manager. Oh, well, I'm sure that's a fucking <laughs> headache considering it's a state. So yeah, I'm sure right. people are doing it and being told it's not them all the time. Right. Well, so, yeah, so it's, uh, it, well. I this, don't trust the AI with all this stuff is, anything. Well, all this stuff is, though, privately owned. So this was privately developed software. It's not owned by the state. So it was, uh, they're just, so it was the house arrest stuff and. Well, yeah. You see a lot of complaints from clients with that. That's because that's uh, people that are monitoring it are not taking the time to 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 pay any attention. I I will say you could say the same thing with the. No, I agree, but I I I don't. I don't see. uh, Matter of fact, I can't ever think of a time where a client blew uh, violated an ignition interlock and it wasn't, um, or no, was was accused of having someone else blowing an ignition interlock, and the picture was not clearly someone else. You know, I've never seen it where it was a mistake. So I think the technology is, is pretty solid. Uh, the client it, it has to pay a user fee, so it's not it's not free. It's uh, $150, I think, to set it up, and then there's like a monthly $30 or $40 fee for, for uh Is that something you have to take it. to like actually get installed in your car, or mm-hmm. is it just something you plug in? Mm-hmm. You actually, it's installed in your car, and your car will not start until you have blown into it, and it's below, below point. Of, well, it can't register alcohol at all. So you, you, you have to be sober, or you won't be able to drive it. Um, so, you, you know, semi-drivers, they, they have a lot tougher uh, tougher hoops they got to jump through and whatnot. I know that they don't even have to have a .08 to still get in trouble or lose their license right. or something like that, right? They can have anything in there? There's a .02 or .03, and the Department of Transportation will suspend their CDL for a year. So if it's like a .01, um, I mean, is that even possible from a single beer? Or is a single beer going to put you higher? Well, you're always, at some point, everybody, every person's at a point of one that drinks right so if you get yourself to a point one five eventually at some point you were at a point of one to get to point one five and at some point you're back down to a point of one before you're fully sober 
So yeah, it's possible to get a point of one. Sure. But like, would you? Is that that lot of time would you, where would we you see? Th- would you get in trouble for that? Like, would you, or at least I lose think your you have to be a point oh two, a point oh three. If you're a CD, okay. And then you're done. You they lose your license for a year. For a year. Your CDL, not your driver's license, but your CDL. Your endorsement to be able to drive a commercial vehicle. So harsh penalty too. I mean, that's taking away somebody's job. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's, it's different than just driving. But they're also driving. You know, Massive death multi-ton vehicles that can crush every vehicle on the road. So yeah, there's a lot of things with semi drivers that I feel like is a bit unfair, like when it comes to like tickets and whatnot. Yeah. But I don't think I think that is a justified harsh. Yeah, because they are driving very dangerous vehicles. Yeah, and they you know, are. as if a semi tips over, it can block entire lanes of traffic, crush for, people to death, and crush people to death. Yeah, you just yeah, yeah. It's it's not someone, same with pilots. Pilots are very strict. Uh, requirements on um, when I, I think it's I think their rule is from takeoff drink to takeoff I think it has to be more than 12 hours I believe is their their rule so when they know they're scheduled to fly or if they're on call um, to fly then um, uh, they have to um, they have to uh, not have drank beforehand so Let's jump back to the field sobriety test. So the one they will do most often first is called the horizontal gaze nystagmus. Everybody's probably seen that. That's where the police officer holds up a pan or the finger and is watching the person's eyes um, track back and forth. There's For all the field sobriety tests, there's something called clues. So they're looking for clues that are violations of the test, if you will. On the um, horizontal gaze nystagmus, there's a total of six clues, three for each eye. If you have four or more of the clues, it's considered a failure. So they're looking at, basically they're looking at what your eye does of sort of a vibrating thing while it tracks. If it's doing it um, prior to the onset of 45 degrees, if it's not tracking smoothly, if it's doing it what's called maximum deviation, that's when you've got your eye turned as far as it can in one way and it's still vibrating, those are all the three clues. So if you fail two of those in each eye, then that's considered a failure of that test. Okay, so you you had mentioned how in San Francisco or whatever or whichever police department it was, they had done their standardized field testing. Is this something that happened like a while ago, like in the seventies or eighties, or is this something that was recent? Um, I believe they were standardized in the nineteen nineties, if I if I remember correctly, because when I first started out as a um, prosecutor in um, uh, Hamilton County, Indiana, they were already standardized at that time, and that was in two thousand three. And I know they'd been around for quite a while. So I want to say it was like ninety seven. 96, 97, that the San Diego department did enough of them that they were saying, okay, this is reliable. You can you can count on that. Um, so, yeah, that's the first one. Um, the second, and each of these are less reliable. So a horizontal gaze stagnus was found to be the, the most reliable. The second most reliable is what they call the walk and turn. So the walk and turn is a series of nine steps that you have to make heel to toe, one on a on a straight line, make a turn in a specific way, and then walk back nine nine steps heel to toe. Um, in that case, there's eight clues. Uh, you only have to distrib- you only have to demonstrate two of them to be considered a failure. So if you if you're, you're you're ordered to stand still with your arms next to you, if you start the test before you start walking before they tell you to, that's a clue. If you have a gap bigger than half an inch between your heel and toe when you take your steps, that's a clue. If you step off the line. That's a clue. If you raise your hands in the air for balance while you're walking, <clears throat> that's a clue. If you take the inappropriate, if you take the improper um, amount of steps, that's a clue. If you do the the turn um, uh, 
improper, that's a clue. If you step off the line, that's a clue. So all these things can be accumulate. If you do any two of those, that's considered a failure. So, so let's say you have a hereditary nystigmus, and that's where you know your eye is bouncing from side to side. Right. So your eyes do that naturally, and you have terrible sense of balance. What if you fail all of these like field stop tests, and then you go and you you know you blow into the big box, or you go and get a blood test, and it shows that you are actually sober? Can they still pursue charges off that? So you pass all the field sobriety tests. You fail all the field sobriety tests, but you pass the blood draw and you pass like blowing into the bigger so box. So how well do you pass it? <laughs> well, that's what I was like that. Like so, I've say, seen it says you're somebody dead sober. as low as a .05 still be charged with an operating vehicle. Well, I'm saying like let's say you're just dead sober, but you have a hereditary nystigmus, and you know you have terrible balance. You well, fail yeah, all the field tests, but you you pass like you're completely dead sober when it comes to a blood draw or when it comes to blowing into the bigger box. If you test if you tested a zero zero on a uh, breath test and you failed all the field spray tests. Then the officer's probably going to wonder if you're under the influence of, a, of some sort of drug. And so that's when they're going to take you for a blood draw and see if you have some sort of other substance in your, in your um, system and it's outside therapeutic range. So this, is, gets, this gets really complicated. So Now, now you, you say outside of therapeutic range. But you can also get in trouble for being on, on, your, prescriptions. on your prescriptions. Yeah, so we, we talked a little bit about this earlier. Ambien is the perfect example. Ambien can cause you to be completely loop-a-doop in the middle of its dose session, right? So if you wake up at 2 in the morning and you're on Ambien and you drive, it's probably a mess. Matter of fact, I've seen a case where a car was driving from um, side to side. They were hitting the curb on one side of the road, going all the way over to the other side of the road, hitting the curb, and literally bouncing back. Like like ping-ponging back and forth? So bad that an ambulance turned on its lights and sirens and pulled the car over because they were afraid they were going to get a bad crash. They were under the influence of something like Ambien. Um, something that, I want to bring up to our to our listeners, too, is Ambien. You know, a lot of times the people don't even know they're actually doing right. it. Am- Ambien is one of those – it's a very scary sleeping medication because uh, it has some really serious side effects. Some of those side effects include um, – so say you take your sleeping meds and you start to feel tired but you don't go to bed immediately. That can cause you to start seriously hallucinating and not in, like, a way that's, like, fun – it's it's right. like it's like a terrifying. You're not. They'll walk around naked. Yeah, they'll do all types of crazy stuff. Or you'll wake up in the middle of the night, and it's it's akin to sleepwalking. You don't know you're awake. You don't know what you're doing. Right. But, but you'll do something. You right. may drive. You may try and eat. Right. You know. And and you have can, no memory of doing it. Yeah. So it, it's almost kind of unfair because even if you were um, intoxicated, if you had your whereabouts, you you wouldn't still drive. But right. now because you are completely not like the. The lights are on, but nobody's home. You right. know what I mean. Right. And you're driving. You you would still get charged for that, even within the the therapeutic range of your Ambien. Despite right. if you had any control over it, you would not have done so. True, I've seen it with uh, Ambien, Soma, um, all the oxy or all the uh, opiates. I've opiates is weird because opiates doesn't make you like hallucinate and lose control. It slows your action time. It down. does. It does like slow your yeah. reaction time down, but it doesn't make you like. The lights aren't on, or the lights aren't on nobody's home. It doesn't make that happen. Yeah, you can actually fail. They actually have what's called a DRE exam, drug recognition exams they can do that are additional field sobriety tests, if you will. So they were doing horizontal nystagmus, which means they're moving the, the, the stimulator, the thing you're watching from eye to eye or from side to side. They have one called ver- vertical nystagmus, so you're moving the eye up and down. And you when you, when you have nystagmus bouncing up and down, it is... Um, 
usually an indication of drug use. So they have other up and down is drug use vertical. and side to side alcohol. is alcohol. Really? Yeah, yeah. So they have different tests they can huh. do if they suspect that. And if they they have drug recognition examiners, so specific people specifically try into it. That no. the up and down, like you could be, you could smoke a blunt, and maybe your eyes will shake uh, if it's up and down, or so is it like harder drugs? We'll talk it? about marijuana in a, in a minute too. Well, we can, we can jump into that now. Uh, marijuana is okay. So it, marijuana does slow your action time down. So a toxicologist or a um, uh, I guess someone that's it's um, I guess would be an expert in the field of impacts of toxicological substances on your impairment would say it's not safe to drive while under the influence of, of marijuana because it does impact your reaction time. So the trick about it though is marijuana leaves your the active ingredient in marijuana, which is what you have to have to show active impairment, leaves your system so quickly that it's very difficult for them to develop a test for them to say somebody was at an impaired level of marijuana. So Indiana has a, another statute which is operating a, a, a vehicle with a uh, controlled substance in your system. So if you smoke marijuana in any regular amount, you're almost always violating that statute because yeah. the metabolite qualifies. Yeah, so that, that's actually a really good point because I wanted to bring this up. Something that my, that my stepmom, you know, she's a real big stickler, stickler, and whenever I was in high school, you know, I would smoke. And something that she would always say is, uh, as a way to, like, try to get me to stop smoking is that if I were to get into a car accident – and I hadn't say I hadn't smoked in two three days, but it would still be in my system. And then they did a blood draw and saw that I had it in my system that I would be either at fault or arrested because I have it in my system. Yeah, so you could get the you could get the operating vehicle with a controlled substance in your system. That's a C misdemeanor, so it's like the the low level DUI. Same thing, same penalties. Everything's the same. Um, that that can happen, and you'll see that. Is that? To like get the common, one, though. Like, is that something that really happens that much unless the cops are just out for them or it's a really hard county? Uh, you'll see it in cases where they do a blood draw um, and it just comes back. Like, they're doing a blood draw to check your alcohol or to see if you're under the influence of drugs because you failed all the field sobriety tests. And that substance comes back along with another one usually because, you know, you have to show the impairment. Typically, right, right. Then they'll, they'll add that charge in. So if you, but if you're passing everything, like, let's say I they get... Won't, they don't have probable cause to give you the blood draw. Real. I, thought, I thought, like, if you caused an accident or if you're in an accident, they can take your blood draw. They, they can do that in that, those situations. So if you if you cause it or if you're in it or both. If you're in a, a fatal or serious bodily injury, they can they can pretty much get it. There's a lot of nuances to the law, but you can pretty much get a, a blood draw of somebody in, in that situation. So yes, you could get charged with the misdemeanor of that, but to charge you with a more serious offense, they have to also show that your impairment is what caused the accident. So, so there wouldn't be an, like there you couldn't argue that even though it's in your system you clearly couldn't be impaired because the amount that's in your system yes, would you be could. indicative. No, hundred percent you could. You could fight that. Yeah, if it's just metabolites, you're going to probably be able to win that charge. But you could still get the metabolite charge, the misdemeanor. The misdemeanor. So, but you said that still carries the same penalties of losing your license for like DUI. six months or whatever. Maybe. Now, yeah. So um, let's talk about the last field sobriety test, and then we'll talk about some of the penalties that come with all this stuff. The last field sobriety test is the one like stand. It's the least reliable. That's the one people make fun of a lot of times. You have to stand uh, with your hands to your side. You have to lift your your foot up with your toe pointed up toward yourself. Uh, minimum of uh, six inches. You have to hold it, and while you're doing that, you have to count out loud for 30 seconds. So that one also has four four clues. If you raise your arms uh, for balance, if you hop on your foot, if you put your foot down, or if you sway. 
any of those four are clues. If you exhibit two out of those four clues, you are considered a failure. You have to do that for 30 seconds. Very tough, ca- very t- tough case to prove by itself. It only has about a 67 to 70% accuracy rate. But if you fail all three of them, what the standardized field sobriety test showed was about 89% of the time, those people were at above a 0.08. Right. So that's why it's been allowed to be used to establish uh, probable cause for, for DUI. So now officers, when they charge, the, you have to show both the physical and mental impairment. The field sobriety tests show a lot of physical impairments, right? Mm-hmm. That's why you'll see some officers do the touch your finger to the tip of your finger, uh, your thumb to the tip of your finger, you know, forward and backwards, have you count backwards, do the alphabet backwards. That's them trying to show the mental impairment part of it. Right, so right. sometimes officers will do that to have that extra layer of uh, proof, if you will. And interestingly enough, like I said, you don't have to be Mirandized before field sobriety tests. Um, so the license suspensions can range anywhere from no lit, no suspension at all to... You could get no suspension for a DUI? You can if you get a judge. It's just super lenient. All the way up to a year. Um, and a, on a first offense, very common to get a 60-day license suspension or to get specialized driving privileges where you can drive for work. Um, that on a, on a first offense, you get a second offense, you're going to start looking like a year long suspension. Right. Um, you get multiple offenses. Not only you're going to get like a year and a half, two years suspensions, but you're also going to then get hit with the administrative suspensions from the BMV where you start becoming a habitual traffic violator. And then you can also get something the habitual vehicle substance offender, which we talked about earlier. Now, why would you take a breath test? So you 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 like sign a contract or something. When you get your license, you have to, right? Or you lose your license immediately? Okay, good. Good answer. Uh, so in Indiana, you do have, you impliedly consent to doing a breath test if somebody has probable cause to, to uh, that you've been driving intoxicated. So if you're if you, if they have probable cause that you've been driving while intoxicated, then they will read a statement to you that tells you, I believe I have probable cause to believe you've been operating a vehicle while intoxicated. I must now offer you a certified uh, breath or chemical test. Will you now? Will you agree to take that test? If you say yes, good. You're good to go. If you say no, they'll then they'll give you the additional warning. If you refuse to take the test, your license will be suspended for one year. So most of the time, on first offenses especially, we would always tell them, please take the test. Because if you don't, then you get a refusal suspension. At your initial hearing, they suspend your license for one year. Just refu- refusing the test, that doesn't count. You, is there any way to argue that they wouldn't have had probable cause? Like, Is, that, is there a time to be able to argue that? Yes, if you, if you think there was some probable cause and they should not have administered the test to you, that's or like something. even if you deny it, like you deny it and you can say, I denied it because I felt like they didn't have probable cause. Is there a way to fight that? Yes, you can file a motion with the court and ask the refusal to be terminated, saying that they didn't have probable cause to give you the test in the first place. Assuming they did, though, they file they'll, at the first hearing, they're going to spend you for a year just for that. You still can get another suspension for the DUI. Now, the refusal can be in negotiations with the prosecutor terminated early. Um, if you have priors, that refusal suspension goes up to two years. It's extremely harsh. Prior DUI or prior DUI? In general? Just okay. prior DUI. Um, so in most instances, it's best to take the breath test because if you refuse to take the test, they will not only get a bl- they not only get your license suspended for a year, they'll get a warrant and get your blood draw, and then they still get the test result anyways. So why take that one year of suspension? Right, right. You're just taking it on the chin anyways. Exactly. So a lot of times people are like, well, I don't take the test. It won't be approved. Yeah, but now you've got a license suspension you didn't have, and they still have your BAC because they did a blood draw on you. And now you you got to face all the repercussions of that, and we got to try to undo all that. So you said most of the time. When is the time that you would think that you should deny it? (sighs) 
I mean, if you have multiple, multiple DUIs in your, you know, maybe you're on probation. I mean, there's a situation there where you might be just like, I don't want to do anything. I'm not going to do the field sobriety test. I'm not going to take your test. You're still going to get a warrant for your blood probably anyways. Um, but sometimes there's things that they do wrong on blood draws that we can attack. Most of the time, it's better to take it. I, I, it's hard to think of a scenario where it isn't because you can you can attack the breath test too, just like you can attack the, the blood draw. There's shortcomings in both of those tests. I mean, don't the judges eventually hear the same stuff over and over and over again, so they're going to rule a specific way? Like, I mean, they do. DUIs are super common. How common do you think they are comparatively? Like, Oh, probably the most common criminal offense we see. Okay, so imagine that these judges are hearing the same thing, and yeah. even if a third of the attorneys are attacking the breath test, they right. have to be hearing the same stuff. Right, yeah. No, I, I agree. So it rarely does it work. But there are certain things with the breath test, like if the machine wasn't calibrated and it was supposed to be, the guy that administered the machine hadn't been certified to give it. Those things all happen. You had something in your mouth too close to the test. Those things can result in the test actually getting thrown out. Same with the blood draw. You have to do the blood draw the so correct way. So chew on gum if you're drunk and driving. Well, they'll they if they do their job right, they look in your mouth, make sure nothing's in it, if you, and then they wait another 20 minutes before they give oh, the test. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. It's when they screw up. But sometimes they do. And same thing with blood draws. How you do the blood draw has to be right. Uh, the process of drawing the blood is a specific way. How they test the blood has to be done a specific way. So there are things that can be fought on both both ends. So I, I mean, my advice, generally speaking, is you should take the you should take the test for sure. And then once they have all those things, obviously they send the paperwork to the prosecutor, and then they're the ones that decide which of the various different charges uh, that they're going to file um, in in terms of. Uh, uh, going after you for whether it's the DUI, the endangering a person, the BAC charge. You mentioned before, below a .08, I've seen people with .05s get charged, and that's because they're saying they still failed the field sobriety test so poorly. They're they driving, the behavior was so bad. inebriated or whatever it may be. They still should have been driving. That can be done. You can prove somebody operating a vehicle while intoxicated uh, without a BAC above .08. That is doable. Because when you see a DUI or you see an OVWI, Every person thinks, oh, okay, they were drunk driving. Same thing. You know, but, but uh, yeah, but, you know, it can also be from other drugs. True. Um, 100%. Cocaine, is, is there, heroin. Uh, you said the penalties are still the same, right? Huffing. I've seen huffing. Huffing. Oh, you talk about, like, nitrous or whatever it is? Yeah. Uh, the Any huff. There's um, there's not not just nitrous. There's, a, there's this, I uh, can't even remember what it is. There's something you huff or it actually will cause you to black out. Sometimes, um, I'm pretty sure that's nitrous. Those, those are all possibles. Now, those are tough ones to prove because stuff substances that you huff don't stay in your system. Now, you now um, as well as you know, kind of talking about the other drug aspect of it. You know, you're you're in your therapeutic range of um, your medication, and, and right. you know, so there is some medication that says don't drive. You know, x amount of time after Kept taking operating it. machinery. Right, but. Yeah. You know, let's say you know I was on my I was on these antidepressants and they made you really drowsy. And the bottle did say may cause drowsiness, but there was never anything anything on it that would have said operating machinery. Operating machinery. Yeah. But there were times where I was so tired that you could argue that I was shouldn't be driving. You shouldn't be driving. Sure. You know what I mean. Um, so does that get sticky? It can, but impaired driving is different than exhausted driving. So. If your adrenaline gets going and you have a, a, a jolt of energy naturally, you should be able to pass the field sobriety test when you're just tired. 
Well, yeah, you, your adrenaline is going to spike as you're pulled over right. and talking to like but three police officers. But adrenaline is not going to help you pass a field sobriety test when you're intoxicated. It's Makes not. sense. So there should be a differentiation. And, it, and most of the time, quite honestly, if somebody's within therapeutic range and their driving behavior wasn't horrendous, that's something the prosecutors are going to take into account. Right. Because, I mean, I, didn't Tiger Woods have something like that happen, right? Or well, he wrecked? his last crash, they didn't test his blood. Well, I know that there was one that people – he he got charged for it, and they were saying that he it was he just was the medications he was taking. He was Grange for his, his pain medicines. Yeah, yeah, that, that happens frequently. You know, you have to be you have to. And the thing that's really tough is the longer somebody's on a prescription, the less likely it is to impact them. So there's a there's this threshold where it gets, you know, build up tolerance. Yeah, well, how do they know when they've reached that point? So you yeah, know, yeah, you yeah. got to be more lenient on the people that you do with those kind of things for sure something you see when people are getting pulled over uh like you know you watch these cop videos whatever it may be is that they'll they'll say uh i'm I'm not drunk i'm just tired is it possible to say that you're impaired just because you're tired tired alone um like if you are exhausted, been driving for like that, a you day can't and get a half, charged for that. You can't. You have to be under the influence of an impaired subject. Substance. Okay. Yes. But they will definitely probably give you a hard time. Well, yeah. I mean, you could be arrested for it. You, then you, your your test should come back clean. Right. But if they still think you maybe you're on drugs, they may give you a blood draw and still arrest you for it. Yeah. That car, be, your car's had, impounded. I've had people pass breath tests and pass a blood test and have the case dismissed. In fact, I've said I've had that happen. Yeah, but then you got to fucking get your car out of impound. Pay for an attorney. Yeah. <laughs> All the consequences of Yeah, our system can be a little out of whack at times. Yeah. There's no doubt about Sometimes that. Sometimes it feels so. like we should have at least a little bit more recourse, more than just, oh, well, cops can make mistakes, which understandably so. But, right, right. You yeah. know, it's not people, a perfect system. People should also not have the ability to fuck their financial situation right. be up because totally someone else made a mistake. 100%. 100%. All right, well, I think that pretty well covers the world of uh, DUI, DWI, OWI. Um, yeah, I don't think I can really think of anything else. Is there – actually, something that I, I wanted to – do the do the penalties – you know, typically when it comes to other charges, this is just my last question. You know, you, you could get a possession charge in Marion County, and you can get a possession charge in Hendricks County and get two totally different results. Right. Is that is is it usually the same for DUI based on what county you're in? Is it is, is the penalty the same across the board? I'd say for a first offense, the, the penalty is relatively similar across the board. There's a couple counties that actually are a little more lenient on first offenses than the others. Most of them are a year probation, no alcohol while you're on probation, do an alcohol class or whatever. Uh, once you get into multiple DUIs, it is a huge variation. Some of them take a much more treatment focused and will put you in a, a more intensive treatment program. Uh, some of them will put you in work release so that you're kind of more closely monitored or home detention. So you're being right, more closely right. monitored. That's very common. A lot of them will just go straight jail. Yeah. Okay. So that varies drastically once you get into the multiple DUIs okay. by, the, by the county for sure. I think that's my last question. If there's any other questions I may have missed that you guys have and, you know, you're, you're, you're listening to this. Hit us up on Facebook. Yeah, hit us up on Facebook, comment somewhere. Yeah. You know, we'll definitely, uh, you know, we'll, we'll bounce back to this in our next episode and try and answer those questions for you guys. Yeah, we appreciate you listening and uh, hopefully our little nerding out on the drunk driving laws uh, call somebody to learn something new put to use in your in your own life out there. So uh, again, thanks for joining us. This has been another episode of Pocket Law Talks. See ya.